0: It is so good to see you all. As a lot of you know, uh, my wife Laura and I spent the summer in Charlottesville, Virginia. So spending the whole summer in Virginia was quite pleasant at the beginning of the summer and quite hot at the end, as you can imagine. Uh, But there's a really good friend that Laura and I have in Virginia named Lauren. Her name's Lauren Bleem, but we call her Bleemer. And Laura has known Bleemer her whole life. Basically, I consider her to probably be one of my very closest friends and uh, very much one of my very closest female friends. and. She and I go way back as well, because I met her at the same time that I met Laura, and she was my wing woman when I was desperately trying to win Laura's heart and not doing a very good job at it. So she was a bridesmaid in our wedding, but I told her, if you're not a bridesmaid, you'll definitely be a groom's woman for me. And so we hadn't seen Lauren in a number of years. Just, you know, sometimes with friends, when you travel back, it's always that cursed thing of they end up traveling somewhere the week you're back in town so you miss them. So we hadn't seen Lauren in three years. And this is a very close friend. Um, So we got together. And it was a real gift. Uh, Lauren can make my wife laugh more than I can, which is saying something because my wife still thinks I'm funny, which is a miracle in itself. Uh, but you know, we were just gonna get breakfast and breakfast turned into brunch and brunch turned into lunch. We just ended up being together all day. But you know what I found interesting? When you see a friend that you haven't seen for a long time and you're a close friend, an intimate friend, a friend that you've had for a very long time, they know all of the details about your life and you know all the details about their lives. When you haven't seen them for a long time, have any of you ever experienced this small talk feels awkward and uncomfortable and you just want to get it out of the way? You just want to plow through how was the drive and get straight to how's the state of your soul? How are your parents? How was your recent breakup? But you know that you can't. So you just kind of do the small talk as quick as possible and then you jump into the real things, the heart of the matter, what you actually want to talk about. Have any of you ever experienced something like that? Well, I'm experiencing that today. I know many of you are going to be interested in all kinds of things about, you know, my sabbatical and Laura's sabbatical, all the places we went, all the fun that we had, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about that later. Don't worry. But today, all I want to talk about is the heart of the matter, the reason why we gather together. The reason why we stay together. The thing that I was talking about before I left, and the very first thing I want to talk about with you upon my return. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today I want to look at this great doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Justification by faith. I know that if you're new here, we're going to jump right into the deep end, but you probably need to recognize if you're going to come back, we tend to like the deep end. So welcome if you're new, we're glad you're here. But if you would turn with me to Romans five, verse one, it's just going to be a one verse sermon today. We have a barbecue right after service, so I've been told to go quickly, although I might have a hard time with that. Uh, But let's just look at one verse and I want to look at three things today. Um, First. Why does justification matter? This great gift that through Christ Jesus, God declares that we are just, we are righteous, we are good. Why is that still an important word today in our world in which truth has become so relative and moral realities no longer seem to matter? Some would say that we don't care about guilt anymore because people don't feel guilt anymore. I say that's utter nonsense the justification means the same today as it did yesterday every human heart is longing for it even if they don't know it second i want to look at this dual reality of justification justification being declared just being declared righteous is a taking something away from us by Christ Jesus namely our guilt and a giving something to us from Christ Jesus namely his obedience it is both a removal and an addition so if you would, please turn with me to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Never have been more beautiful words said. I want to paint a picture for you as to why justification still matters. Why is it that we still talk about this? Why do we still proclaim this is good news when many of us think, I almost had somebody tell me, I don't think we can operate in the categories of guilt anymore. Like, I don't know. No, I think we can. I think people actually have profound guilt right now that they are placing a shadow over with their proclamation that they no longer care about it. So let me just paint a picture of maybe a different way we can understand our guilt and why we need Jesus to remove it from us. As some of you know, I'm working quite foolishly on a PhD in historical theology, um, desperately trying to chip away at a vague understanding of the Reformation, particularly John Calvin's contribution to it. I study at a school called the Theological University of Apeldoorn in the Netherlands. It's a small little school in a small little town with a titan of a theologian that teaches there. His name's is Hermann Selterhaus. Uh, if you're in Reformation studies, you know the name. He seems to be the president of everything... He writes more books than I can read. Uh, You know, I joked that you're not, if you write an article with your uh, advisor, they're not really supposed to be the editor of that journal. The problem is Herman's the editor of every journal, you know. Um, He's everywhere. But not if you don't know Calvin studies and Reformation studies. But why I really chose the school is because Herman is also a really godly man. He's a pastor. He's a grandfather. I think he has like six kids. Uh, And to top it all off, He's a rabid Liverpool fan. So that was kind of the icing on the cake. I met his wife over the summer and I brought up Liverpool and she said, oh, Liverpool. I said, "Yes, yeah, what the look my wife gives too when we start talking about Liverpool. So anyway, so I went to the Netherlands to get to sit down with Herman face-to-face with about 40 other uh, PhD students from all over the world. And it was an incredible experience. Thank you for sending me to that. Thank you. Um, the devotion... The academic rigor, uh, the the common conviction on the doctrines of grace were overwhelmingly fruitful and just an incredible blessing to me. And just the, the the global nature of it. We had pastors from Indonesia, teachers from Nepal, three different teachers from Nepal, each from a different caste system. It was so incredible. Uh, they were such lovely men. Um, Uh, people from India that work with special needs students in villages. I mean, it was a truly global program. It was just such a gift to me, such a gift. Except for one day. One day was very difficult. The day that I had to present my chapter, my second chapter in my dissertation, to the committee. Now, I thought it was just my working group. It would just be Herman and my four colleagues in North America. No, 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 no. It was Herman, the entire department and all of my peers. And this is a rough draft. And I said many times, this is a rough draft, there's probably spelling errors in this. Well let's just put it this way, the, uh, it was painful, it was very painful. The Dutch are rather direct people, um, they're wonderful, this idea that they're mean couldn't be further from the truth, generous, the church is alive there. The church across the street from me had a thousand people a Sunday, and they preached the gospel. It was incredible. But they're very direct. And so, you know, they were critique. I mean, the first round of critique I got on this, the first round of critique was public in front of the whole department and all of my peers. And it ranged from, this is a terrible structure, we have to redo all of this, to, that's not right, what you just said, you need to look into so-and-so. I'm like, it's only in Dutch, I, don't, I can't read Dutch, I can't read that dissertation, doesn't matter, you still have to. It was everything, guys, it was brutal. Afterwards, my, my advisor, Herman, who's a very wonderful man, pulled me aside and said, hey, this is kind of how we do things here. You're, you're doing fine. It's going to be okay. And so did most of the other professors except for one who was just mean. But the other ones, the good ones were, were pretty clear. Most of my peers just said, thank God it was you and not me because basically nobody else submitted a chapter. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of hard. And I kept thinking, you know, at the time, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, I'm in a country where, where Belgian beer is cheaper than Coors Light. How could I be in a bad mood in this country? Um, uh, but then, I won't lie, when I got home, I didn't do any more research. I fell into a bit of a slump. And I started to ask myself the question, am I good enough? Am I good enough to make a genuine contribution to such a titan as John Calvin? I should have picked someone more obscure and vague in English and not Latin. Yeah, wasn't a good plan. Uh, Am I good enough to do this in the Netherlands, where their standards are very, very high? Am I just a tired pastor who maybe was kind of smart when he was a seminary student, and through grief and work and life has just become kind of dull? Am I good enough? And I don't think I'm the only person that's ever asked that question of themselves. Mothers, do you ever ask that question of yourself? When you maybe had a two-year-old figured out and then they become a three-year-old and you feel incompetent all over again, or you look across the church from, and you know, those kids seem to be behaved and yours aren't. How many of you have had it at work uh, where the corporation downsizes or your boss just finds you to be redundant and they say you're not good enough anymore and you're gone? How many of you have had that constant question because you never actually felt good enough from one of your parents? And that tape, I'm not good enough, is always running in the background of your mind. You're always trying to prove to the world that you are, but deep down you don't feel it. Or let's make it even more personal, one that this one might be hard to hear. You have a perpetual sin in your life that you have tried to get rid of, And you're afraid to finally admit it might be an addiction to this sin, whatever that sin might be. And you wonder, every time you come to church, does God really want me here? Or does he just kind of tolerate me? Or does he deep down actually hate me? How many of you have asked that question, am I good enough? Well, that is the precise starting place in which justification speaks. Because justification is this great proclamation that in Christ Jesus, everything that makes you not good enough to stand before your Father in heaven has been taken away from you and nailed to a cross where it actually stays. There is a great removal of your not good enough. But often... speaks to the very heart of human existence to ask, am I loved? Am I seen? Am I valued? Or am I simply tolerated? And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, not only seen, are you seen? Not only tolerated are you, you are beloved because not only is your guilt removed, but now you are wrapped in, clothed in, united to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when the Father looks upon you, what He does not say is, This is my child that I kind of tolerate. Rather, He says, This is my beloved Son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Justification speaks to the very heart of the matter because so many of us are asking, Am I good enough? And in Christ Jesus, the answer is yes and amen. Now, let's look at how we are made good enough. Let's look at how we are declared righteous. I said this earlier, but often we... Okay. The Bible doesn't often speak in only one category for how something works, just as in everything in life. It's, it's, It's multivariant in how the Lord talks about salvation. So we see justification is first, this great image of removing guilt from you. If you have no guilt... There is no record of wrong held against you. And this is what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 say this. In you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of, the, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Does that say some? Some. All of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When you have no record of wrongs, you have no guilt. And the first image of justification that we have is that Jesus Christ takes all of our guilt upon himself and carries it away. This is the image that we see in the day of atonement in the Old Testament. If you remember in the day of atonement in the Old Testament, there are two goats. And the priest lays his hands upon the heads of both goats and the sins of all of God's people are transferred to those goats. They now are the representation of sin itself. It is removed from Israel and given to these animals. And one is killed and its blood is taken and it is splashed upon the Ark of the Covenant to be a veil to cover over the sins of God's people. But the other one is cast out into the wilderness to go and die alone, away from God's people and away from God's presence. What does that say? Jesus Christ is the far greater goat. We often think about it as the lamb, but there's, there's a lot of ways you can think about Jesus. And when we place our faith in him, what we are proclaiming is this. This head, this one, and this alone can take my sins away. This one who wore a crown of thorns on my behalf can actually wash me clean by his blood and remove my guilt from me as far as the east is from the west. Here and here alone can everything that is not good enough in me be taken away. My moral guilt as he bears the punishment for my sin The alienation that Christ receives as the whole world rejects him and sends him out to die alone upon a cross in humiliation, he swallows up that shame into himself. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is talking about. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Part of what it means to be declared righteous is to be declared there is no guilt in this one. None. Because it's been removed. I didn't... I didn't... For the sake of time, I didn't add an, you know, a fourth movement of this sermon. But it's interesting. Look, look at what, this, look what Romans 5 1 says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does faith mean? The reformers would say faith is like the instrument by which the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus and brings us into his justification. John Calvin, I, I love it. We talk about this a lot. He would say faith is the sure conviction that God is no longer judge but benevolent father. That's what it means to grow in Christ, to believe he doesn't see me anymore as a judge waiting to condemn me. He sees me as a beloved father who delights in me because I'm wrapped in his son's righteousness. But there's also another image to faith that we often miss. And in fact, I don't know if I really saw it for years and years. It's faith as this great negation. And it's what Romans 3 and Romans 4 talk about when it comes to faith which come right before Romans 5, you know, simple math there, right? Romans 3 and Romans 4 talk about faith by what it is not. Do you know what faith is categorically opposed to? Faith is the absence of works. Go through Romans 3 and 4 sometime and look at it as this great dialectic where Paul is saying, not by works, not by works, not by works, but by faith. What is faith? It is, okay, what is works? Works is trying to use our hands to resolve our guilt. Works is trying to say, God, I am going to resolve this sin, this guilt, this feeling of rejection in my life on my own terms, in my own time, in my own strength. And sadly, many of us still believe that's the heart of discipleship. We believe that if we stay guilty, then we'll work harder, and then we'll, that'll lead to sanctification. And there have been many heretics throughout the church that want to keep Christians there. Pelagius was the first. I won't name the, the rest. All right? Guilt does n- is not a good motivator. Rather, what we see, faith, is the proclamation that the only place my hands can go is upon the head of Jesus. Jesus. It is the last option we have. I've tried to resolve it myself. I've tried to get rid of the sin myself. I've tried to find wholeness in myself, you know, from the rejection of my parents or my spouse or the world around me. I've tried everything. It is only here that I can experience the wholeness, the forgiveness, the peace I have been looking for. It is only upon the head of the perfect sacrificial lamb that I can be truly made whole. It is here and here alone. When you look at Romans, especially Romans 3 and 4, that's what Paul is driving at. And I can't believe it. I'd never seen it until about a year ago. It is this proclamation that no works can justify me, but simply looking to the faithfulness, the life, death, and resurrection of my Lord Jesus Christ and saying here and here alone can I lay my hands and here And here alone, upon this perfect, spotless head that carried a crown of thorns for me, can my burdens be removed. I'm reading a young pilgrim's progress with Miles right now, and he's so anxious to find out when the burden's going to get cut. And I say, oh, son, one day you'll know. One day you'll know. If you know, Christian, he's got the burden on his back. And the only place where he can be freed is the cross of Jesus Christ. So first, justification is a removal. And there's only one place where it can be removed. The life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now second, I want to tell you that's not enough. It's not enough. You can forgive someone and still be somewhat ambivalent towards them. You can say, hey, that person's, I mean, there's no wrong in them, but I see nothing good in them either. Right? Right? It's not enough to simply have our sins removed. Here's what some people would say. You can have your sins removed, and then you've got to make God happy. I won't call those people out. One of them is a very famous Anglican that I don't agree with. All right, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you aren't going to make God happy in your own works because we're turned in on ourselves. Because he's already happy anyway because of the work of Christ Jesus for you. What we see is that Christ Jesus has to remove our sins by the power of the cross. And then through his life and our union with him, he lays upon us all of his obedience, all of his perfect righteousness, all of his holiness, all of his glory. And it is counted as our own. So when the father looks upon you, he not only declares you are forgiven, but he delights in your presence. Not only do we want to know, are we good enough? We want to know, am I delighted in? Does anyone's face light up when I enter a room? Does anyone find me as glorious and good? Am I anyone's first choice? And not their last choice. And in Christ Jesus... We know that we are God's first choice because through faith in the Holy Spirit we are wrapped in Christ Jesus, clothed in Christ Jesus, hidden in Christ Jesus, grafted onto Christ Jesus like a vine or a branch to the vine. The New Testament is always pointing at, driving at this great doctrine of union with Christ, our participation in Him and yet words fail, categories fail, but what doesn't fail is the proclamation that we have been united to him. So that when the father looks upon you, he doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't say, oh, I guess I got to like them. Rather, he sees you as perfect, holy, spotless as his beloved son, as his beloved daughter. This is what we see in Romans five nineteen, For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is what the reformers, they drew a distinction here. They said Christ's sacrifice is called his passive obedience, right? He, he received from the Father, okay, I, I've got to go die for the world. Passive obedience. That removes sins from us. But we also need his active obedience, that every minute of his life was lived in my place. So that when you share your testimony, when I share my testimony, they're the same testimony. We all have one testimony. It happened 2,000 years ago when a baby was born of a virgin and lived a perfectly righteous life. And that's my story, and that's your story. And that's the story that counts for all of us. It doesn't mean our stories diminish and disappear. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the most important thing about you is the life Christ lived in your place. So that when the Father looks upon you, He doesn't look upon you in mere toleration. He doesn't merely look at you who, oh, He's got no sins, but there's really nothing good about Him. No. He sees you through the lens of His perfect Son. and says, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. The delight of God through Christ Jesus is yours. When I saw you today, that's all I wanted to talk about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have justified us. You have made us righteous. You have made us new. You have removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You have made us glorious in the Father's sight by your perfect righteousness. Lord, would we go to you in faith, casting aside all of our works all of our desperate attempts to make ourselves good enough in relying upon you and you alone. To the glory of your name. Amen.